Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In this episode of Boss Files. Not to worry, because worry is wasteful and useless in times like these. Because in the end. Only kindness matters. Legendary singer-songwriter, Jewel. She grew up in Alaska, left home as a teenager hitchhiking from Michigan to Mexico. And it's when I looked in the mirror that I realized, oh, I didn't avoid being a statistic. I am a statistic. I'm a homeless kid with panic attacks. She was discovered at just 18 years old. And by 23, she graced the cover of Time magazine. Fame never was a lure for me. It was always sort of a false profit. My currency has always been my ability to have an authentic, happy life. Today, she's working to share her happiness with all of us through Jewel Never Broken, an online community with tools to help lead a happy life. Plus, she calls her three-year-old son her greatest accomplishment. I sat down with the one and only Jewel at Fortune's Most Powerful Women Summit. Jewel, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So many ways to describe you. You are a mother. I say that first because as a mom, that's the hardest of all the jobs and the most rewarding. A Grammy nominee, you've sold over 30 million albums. Philanthropist, actress, New York Times bestselling author, so much more. You are a legend. You are one of the few of us who can go by one name. How do you define yourself today? Um... I guess just a curious human. That's what I've always been. I've always been on a mission to understand how do we have a happy and fulfilled life Mm -hmm. and how can I avoid being a statistic and how can I empower other people to do the same. Why did you think you were going to be a statistic? My mom left when I was eight and my dad took over raising us and I grew up bar singing and I saw a lot of people in pain that were trying to outrun pain and I saw that nobody actually ever did it. They would use alcohol or relationships or rage, all kinds of techniques to avoid what pain they were in. I knew about pain because my mom leaving of course was painful, the divorce was painful, but my dad suffered a lot of PTSD from his own childhood. He was raised in an abusive household and then he went to Vietnam when he was 18. Mm. And then when my mom left, he suddenly was incredibly trauma-triggered and turned to alcohol to try and calm his anxiety, to calm his panic attacks, which didn't go incredibly well for him. And he became abusive when I was eight. So I was suddenly, mm -hmm, and so I was suddenly thrust into a divorced household where my mom left, where my dad was becoming an alcoholic and abusive, and it caused me to move out at 15. This is you grew up in a a two-room. Home, mm-hmm. essentially in Homer, Alaska. I did. You're abused from the age of 8 to 15. So you're, you're mm-hmm. living this mm-hmm. for seven years. Yeah. And then you just, you had enough. I did. I uh, decided to move out at 15, which is kind of a radical thing to do. Sure. Um, but I had been working my whole life and felt like it was better to try and live on my own than live within the situation I was dealing with. And I did know when I moved out at Statistically that kids like me end up repeating the cycle that they're raised by. 
I called it emotional English. So as much as we inherit a genetic inheritance, we also inherit an emotional inheritance. So my dad was raised in an abusive household. I'm going to assume my grandfather was raised in a, an abusive household. And that meant I would be, you know, the only emotional language I knew was that language. Uh, avoiding conflict until eruption happened, um, having no ability to understand or process pain. Um, I wanted to avoid being a statistic. I wanted the cycle to stop with me, but I didn't quite know how to do it. But I knew it started with learning what I called a new emotional language. And so I began very purposefully and consciously starting what I called my happiness project when I was 15 to see if I could rewire my brain. You told yourself when you left, I don't want to be a statistic. I'm going to do everything to fight that. But then you, you leave, you're homeless at 18 years old, and you talk about, you say, I used to wash my hair in the public restroom of Denny's and women would give me filthy looks. Did you feel as though you were becoming that statistic that you left not to be. I did well for several years. I ended up getting to go to a private school. I got a scholarship to performance arts high school. I couldn't afford to go away for spring breaks to home, but I hitchhiked all across the country and began writing songs. Um, managed to graduate high school, which was a pretty big thing for big someone deal. like me. Um, I went to San Diego to take care of my mom who had heart problems. And it was there that I was working some dead-end jobs and a boss propositioned me one day and I didn't think a lot of it, I just joked it off. And we continued our conversation, and I'd been propositioned in bars a lot since I was quite young, and so I was fairly adept at joking it off, moving on, moving on to other topics. And when I went in for my paycheck the next day to pay my rent, my boss ignored me, he ghosted me, he acted like I wasn't even in the room. And I left completely horrified and dejected and had to tell my sick mother that we were getting kicked out of where we were living. I started living in my car. Um, my mom did for a while, and then she went back to Alaska. I thought I would get back on my feet. You know, I thought I'd live in my car for a couple months, get a new job, right. save up for a deposit on a new apartment, but my car got stolen that I was living in. And I was having so much anxiety. I was having panic attacks. I was starting to get agoraphobic, which is an intense fear of leaving your house, sure. which when you don't have a house is really oh exasperated. <laughs> um, and I had bad health issues. I almost died in the parking lot of an emergency room because they wouldn't see me because I didn't have insurance and I was dying of blood poisoning because I had a kidney infection. So this poverty cycle was incredibly hard to break out of. I remained oddly optimistic. Some would say compartmentalized <laughs> and detached, uh, which is probably more accurate. Probably just save myself from the amount of fear that I was actually facing. Uh, and so in my day-to-day -day experience, I kind of, if you met me, I would seem like a very happy person, but then I'd go have panic attacks or wouldn't be able to, yeah, or I'd be absolutely paralyzed by a, a trauma triggering or a panic attack. I started shoplifting during this time in my life, and it was one day when I, it was mostly food, but one day it was a sundress and I coveted it. And so I went into the uh, dressing room to see if I could steal this dress, and I looked in the mirror and I saw this image. I couldn't avoid the image of what I was. I was a statistic. Because you, you felt like, here I am doing everything I said I wouldn't, that I was trying to run away from, and here I am back to, back to this. What's interesting is I knew that statistically I should probably become a drug addict, so I promised to never drink or do drugs. Um, I know I should probably end up in an abusive relationship. I managed to avoid that. So I managed some potholes. I just couldn't Those imagine. Those are big ones, Jewel. Those are big Those ones, are big yeah. Ones. <laughs> But I didn't realize that there would be other potholes I'd be facing like this where I wouldn't compromise what I felt like was my integrity and it would lead me to this position. 
Uh, and it's when I looked in the mirror that I realized, oh, I didn't avoid being a statistic. I am a statistic. I'm a homeless kid with panic attacks. And it was then that I remembered a phrase uh, by Buddha that happiness doesn't depend on who you are or what you have. It depends on what you think. And I had the tremendous privilege, if you can say that, of being stripped of everything but my thoughts. You call that a privilege? It was. It ended up being an incredible privilege. Um, life is full of distractions that can distract you from what actually matters. And sometimes the pretty things can distract us the most. Sometimes comfort can distract us. I was incredibly uncomfortable and I didn't happen to have a family or a house or those things to make me comfortable. And so I was forced to see if I could turn my life around literally with just my thoughts. That's all I had left. And so I began to double down on what became a mindfulness journey, where I began to develop tools and practices to help rewire my brain. But so lonely. You were yeah. alone. I learned from a young age that lonely equaled safety, uh, which kept me safe. You because know, the people around you weren't safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's something that a lot of homeless youth learn. Um, or people that are in abused households, they learn to isolate themselves, to protect themselves. And it does keep you safe to a degree, but at a certain point it also isolates you and insulates you from the ability to actually have human connection and joy and happiness. And so while I was homeless, that was one of the things I realized, that my armor was actually killing me. And if I was going to be less lonely, I had to be vulnerable. And that safety was in vulnerability and it was in being honest about who I was and not using art or words or um, anything as propaganda. You hitchhiked. Michigan through Mexico and back, mm -hmm. is that right? When I was 16, yeah. <laughs> but on that, you wrote the song we all know, my generation certainly mm -hmm. knows, Who Will Save Your Soul. Mm -hmm. you, your art saved you, did it? I'd say writing was the beginning of my mindfulness practice. Okay. I started when I was eight years old um, because I saw people in pain and these coping mechanisms people used that weren't effective. I happened to write, my, my the whole family's creative, um, and so I would sit down and I would journal and I noticed when I was observant and curious my anxiety lessened and my pain lessened and I started to put the two together and so whenever I had overwhelming anxiety I would sit down and write and when I was curious and observant I could see my emotions outside myself and I could see that I wasn't my thoughts, I was the observer of my thoughts. And that's something I really doubled down on later when I became homeless when I was 16, hitchhiking yeah. across the country. And that first song I wrote, Whole Save Your Soul, was really about seeing America for the first time and this idea of can we save ourselves? Um, why would I ask somebody else to save me? Why do I think other people owe me? But you did save yourself. Yeah, that's what I was wrestling with. It took me a while. <laughs> I was working sure. on it. But it was really that idea of I owe myself a lot. And I didn't really come to terms with that until I was 18, because shoplifting really is a victim's mentality. And it was finally stopping that and saying, I owe myself more than what I'm doing. Nobody else owes me. It's that I owe myself a lot, and what am I going to do about it? So what was your, quote unquote, for lack of a better term, discovered, mm. right, as, as, as an artist, to become a wildly successful artist when you were still a teenager? I was 18. Yeah. Homeless. You had written this song, many, many others. Can you talk about what that process was like? It sounds odd, but while I was homeless, I really discovered what being happy was. I finally learned to discipline and, and witness my thoughts in real time. 
that not every thought and feeling was a fact, mm -hmm. that I could curate those, those thoughts and those feelings and decide which ones to act on. And mindfulness really is the practice of perceiving a thought and creating a gap before you act on a thought. That gap is magical because that's where change happens. That's where you can bring new values to bear or a new education to bear. And you're not going to just have a neurological reaction. You can pick a new action. That's going to give you a new outcome and a new trajectory in life. So I discovered this while I was homeless, and I began to write about it. Not because I thought I was going to get discovered or on the radio. It was like the furthest thing from my mind. I was trying to get enough money saved up to buy, you know, to get rent on an yeah. apartment. So when labels started coming down, I was really shocked. And in all they honesty, they just heard you playing in the streets, or what? I was singing at a coffee shop that okay. was going out of business. Okay. Um, it was very hard in San Diego at the time to be paid to sing because coffee shops were quite popular and some musicians paid the coffee shop to sing in them and I couldn't afford that. And so there was one coffee shop in particular. My friend sold it out and I sang at it with him. And I went to settle out because they were charging door money. And I went to settle out after the show and she says, oh, we keep the door money. And I was like, excuse me? We, like, we just brought in all these people. My friend did, but. Yeah. Um, and I said, okay, that's fine. I was like, you can keep the door money. Why don't you give me your coffee and food sales? And she laughed, of course, at me. <laughs> and she goes, no, you get to keep the tip jar. And I was so horrified um, by that. And I remember being like, you're stealing from the people mm. that are helping you bring business in. And I was like, you're going to fail. <laughs> my, my little homeless <laughs> self cursed her. I was like, you're going to fail. <laughs> And I went and found a coffee shop that was going out of business. They were closing their doors. They had a sign that was up saying closing soon. And I said, hey, if you'll stay open for a month, give me a month, and I'll try and bring in people, and I'll keep the door money, and you keep the food and coffee wow. sales. And she did it. And I had no fan base, but I started bringing people in. It was yeah. two people, and then four people, and then 12 people. And thankfully, this woman and I succeeded together. And by the end of a year, a local uh, program director from a radio station had heard about heard about me yeah. and he put a bootleg of mine on the radio it turned out to be one of the largest stations in the country 91x oh. uh, and it got played I think at 2 a.m. and ended up so requested I ended up in the top 10 countdown which labels pay a lot of money to get their yes. artists in the top 10 countdown and so labels started going who the heck is this girl with an acoustic guitar at the height of grunge talking about hopeful things and so all of a sudden, limousine after limousine started showing up. They had no idea I was and homeless. And are you still truly homeless at this time? Yeah, I, was, uh, I had enough money to buy a car, and so I was living in a, as a van, actually, yeah. at this time. Um, they had no idea. You know, so they would take me out to a dinner that cost more than I made in my entire life. And they'd be like, where can we drop you off? And I'd be like, here, this is good. <laughs> Wow. I read a book called Everything You Need to Know About the Music Business so yeah. I could learn about how record deals were structured. Well, and it, it, it made you say no to certain things and mm. turn down certain offers. Yeah, it was interesting, to say the least, to be in this position where I was a homeless kid that was suddenly having a, had a bidding war after me. Every single label came and bid on me. And uh, I was offered a million-dollar signing bonus as a homeless kid. But because I had read how deals are structured, I learned that it was strictly a loan and mm. that you owned that you owed that money back. And that basically put a giant bounty on my head. If I didn't sell enough records to pay back a million dollars in enough time that the bean counters thought was an appropriate, you know, <laughs> yeah. amount of time, I would be dropped. And I would go back to being on the street. So you said no to a million dollars. I said no to a million dollars. And I took one of the largest back-ends that any artist had been given, which basically meant that if I sold a record, I would make more money per record, uh, which felt honest you to me. You bet on yourself. 
I did, and I also bought myself the opportunity to make authentic art that I believed in, because I had just fought a year to find myself and to find my voice, and I didn't want to be famous. I didn't even want to be rich. I wanted the chance to make a living doing something I loved, and I wanted to make sure that my number one job was to be a whole happy person, and that my number two job was to be a musician, and to never switch those two around. And in order to do that, I had to buy myself that freedom, which meant giving up that money, but giving myself the opportunity to make good on that promise to myself. More from my interview with Jewel after the break. Fast forward a few years. You're not living in your van anymore. <laughs> you are tr- you are at 23 years old, Jewel, on the cover of Time magazine. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah. What, what, <laughs> was it just sort of a surre- surreal for you to look at that? It was very surreal. I remember walking through the airport on my way to Europe to do a tour and seeing my face all over Time magazine. I was like, who would have thought a hillbilly from Alaska would end up on the cover of Time magazine? You did. <laughs> but that wasn't happiness. I mean, you've talked about even after that time. Yeah. That didn't that didn't define doesn't define for you still happiness and you you talk about finding that within yourself, not if something happens to you. And that's been yeah. a journey you're still on. Yeah, I think that perfectionism is a fantasy. It doesn't exist and it sets you up for failure. But perfectionism is quite an addiction. What it does, though, is create a ceiling for mediocrity. You can't actually be truly great, genius, innovative uh, if you're a perfectionist because it puts a limit on the freedom of your thinking, on how willing you are to take a risk. Mm -hmm. And greatness lies in those big risks and in those big fails. And so it's been a process. Um, I was very happy with my career, very proud that my fans allowed me to have the career that I did where I was allowed to be authentic. I never had to be perfect. I was allowed to lead with my flaws and I was allowed to say to a community of people that I won't use my art as propaganda, but you can't look at me as an idol. You have to live a set of values um, and we're all going to be on this journey together. But I learned some hard lessons. You know, my mom was a manager that it didn't end up working very well for me. And I ended up starting over many ways in 2003, which was a whole new process of relying on my internal guide, my internal compass, on intuition and really mindfulness to rebuild my sense of self. How have you and how did you then and how do you maybe now struggle with fame? If you didn't want to be famous, if you didn't particularly want to be rich, I think you wanted a a roof over your head, Mm -hmm. but you didn't strive for great wealth. How have you wrestled with that fame? At first, it was really difficult to handle the level of fame that I achieved. I didn't plan on that. I thought I was going to have a career like John Prine or Tom Waits. I'd be kind of hopefully a cool singer-songwriter and make a living. It reached levels I didn't think even possible. I worked very hard for it. You know, I did 800, 900 shows a year for many, many years to to be able to break through. What I realized is that it's actually a choice, and you can have the type of career you want. And so fame and my business is set up to be this hamster wheel where as soon as you reach a pinnacle, you've got to keep being that homecoming queen every year. You have to keep having your number one records. After my second record, I quit, and I quit for two years. Drove my label nuts. But I wanted to see if this career still made me happy. I call it a filter update. You know, we dream these dreams. If we're lucky, we achieve them. They may not make us happy. And so you have to reevaluate, is what I asked for, is what I dreamed for and achieved still making me happy? And if it isn't, how would I adjust it to make me happy? And so I took the time to do that. And I realized not living in LA, um, 
living outside of the public eye. Are you in LA now? I'm in Nashville and tell you. Also, being able to say I'm willing to take years off between records. I'm being I'm willing to yeah. invest in myself as a human because I had to learn about health and nutrition. I had to learn about emotional intelligence. I had to learn about psychology. I had to learn about parenting over the years. And those are actual real educations you have to give yourself. And if all you're doing is building your career, you're going to be lacking harmony. So, so you weren't scared about losing it ever. You were not. If you took these risks, you left for years at a time. You weren't scared about losing the fame or the money. Uh, I did lose my money in 2003, which was scary. Um, and it was right at the height of a really big risk that I took musically. I went into the pop, pop world, um, which was considered very controversial at the time. Um, thankfully, the single did well, and I was able to recover. What, which, what, what was that? Uh, it was Intuition. Okay, it was yeah. my hit at the time. Um, that was frightening, but I've always believed in myself. I've always known that I can live with nothing. When you're the family, you know, a, a daughter of pioneers, you know that relying on yourself and you know, being self-industrious is everything. Fame never was a lure for me. It was always sort of a false prophet. My currency has always been my ability to have an authentic happy life. Um, and that's something you have to invest in, just like you invest in your career. Um, and I believe you in do. it. You do. You had, it's just incredible to think about the journey, the progress from when you were homeless and thinking, I had read, I am going to die or I am going to end up in jail. Mm -hmm. That was really your mindset. When you look back on that now, we are sitting together at the Fortune Most Powerful Women Summit. <laughs> I am always humbled and in awe yeah. when I'm here by the women that surround us. Yeah. When you think back to those moments, dead or in jail, you couldn't be <laughs> further from it. <laughs> it is remarkable. When I look back on my life, people ask what success is. I really would say it's simply stubbornness to keep standing up. Success is stubbornness <laughs> to keep standing up. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, to get that. knocked down, just keep standing up and keep a vision of what you believe is possible for yourself, because um, it is. Jewel Never Broken, mm. jewelneverbroken.com. Learn to make happiness a habit. Mm. Help us all. We could all be a little bit happier. <laughs> I think we could all like ourselves a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I think we could all take care of ourselves a little bit more. Yeah. You're, there really is a crisis. teach people this. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't realize that my own journey to learn what it took to be happy and learning that happiness is actually the side effect of having harmony in every area of your life, not just one area, would end up becoming a second career for me. Um, and so now as I've become a mom and as I've looked at a very disrupted industry, the music industry that I'm in, and as I look at where culture is, I do see this epidemic of the highest anxiety and depression rates we've ever faced, the highest drug and opiate addiction rates that we've ever had. Um, as we heard last night, you know, the, this male workforce that's able-bodied um, aren't joining the workforce. There's a tremendous amount of apathy, disconnection, anxiety, and depression, and it's not being addressed in a meaningful way. Why do you think it is? I don't think people, for some reason, have really understood a simple way of explaining to people the psychology of life and what it takes, the anatomy of happiness. It happens to be something I've studied my whole life. I had to study neuroscience. I ended up having to study neuroplasticity. I ended up studying the addictive nature of the brain, how to rewire neural routing, how to get addicted to good habits. And so when I wrote my memoir, Never Broken, people began asking me what 
exercises did you do specifically? And so I formed the website to share the yeah. specific exercises. And Dr. Judson Brewer, who's a famous scientist, uh, actually explained why these exercises I made up when I was homeless, when I realized I'm going to die or end up in jail if I don't do something. He explains why those exercises work on a neurological level, which has been really incredible. And now that's what I'm building a business around. You call yourself a farmer of light. <laughs> Can you explain what that is and also give us what people have to buy your book to, you know, learn all of them. But can you give people who are listening one example of, of something they can start today? Yeah. It's interesting how simple it is. Um, it almost seems too good to be true. But if you take three times a day, a few minutes a day, to simply sit and breathe, count your breaths, and observe your thoughts. Try not to engage in them, but notice, oh, I'm drifting off into thought, and then come back to your breath. That simple act of realizing you're the observer of your thoughts, you're not your thoughts, actually has been scientifically proven to grow your frontal lobes and to shrink your amygdala. So your frontal lobes are where we experience joy, reasoning, processing. Uh, your amygdala is where we experience anxiety. Huh. So in eight short weeks of simply breathing and being the observer of thoughts, you can actually increase your D2 receptors where we get our dopamine and our, you know, all oh. kinds of feel-good you know, biochemical yes. drugs. And we can shrink our anxiety. And so I'd say that's the first simplest thing you can do. On my website, it's free. You can go on and, and see a very simple practice to learn to do that. Uh, as well as some really simple practices that just take minutes a day to start rewiring your neural pathways. How do our phones and social media affect this? There are many ways to be addicted or distracted. There is a phenomenon today called distraction addiction that's been documented. Um, but we literally can addict it to anything. So if you're checking your Twitter account, you travel that neural pathway enough, your body soon prompts you, hey, we haven't done this in a minute, we're supposed to be doing this. Um, huh. So it can be Twitter, it can be eating, it can be drugs, it can be literally anything. It's called a habit loop. And so if we have an impetus or stimulus, a stressor, and we have an action, let's say it's eating, and we get a reward, which is a short-term dopamine rush of eating for comfort, we then have shame, and the next time we get stressed, our brain reminds us, hey, last time we were stressed, right. we ate and we felt better. Those triggers. And so simply replacing what your action is and saying, for a few weeks, I'm going to be willing to replace my action with a healthier action. Let's, let's say for me, I went from stealing to saying I'm going to be committed to writing. I'm going to do it for six weeks and see if it works. It ended up working, and we can get addicted and learn to make a habit out of happiness. You never drank, never did drugs. Um, that's hard for a lot of people not to drink, not to... Was it just what you saw in your own family that you saw what it did in the lives it destroyed? Yeah, I never touched alcohol until I was in my early 30s, probably 33. And I did it because I really felt like I wasn't in a position to be able to mess up. And I had a lot of pain that I was in. And I had seen what it had done to other people to use that as a medicator. and. The only real shortcut life offers is going and moving toward pain. And the quicker you move toward getting curious about your pain yeah. and observing it, the quicker it dissipates. And so I liken it to the weather. If a tree and its branches hung on to every storm that passed and shed its branches around the wind, it would pull the tree over. It's not our jo job to grab onto our emotions. It's our job to observe our emotions and let them pass. And pain is like that. It comes in waves and it goes in waves. If we hang on to it, internalize it deeply, it actually stays with us much longer. And for some reason, we're really not taught what to do with pain. 
and there's this false belief. No, we don't talk about it. We don't, and it's strange because everybody deals with pain, and nobody dies without it. Nobody gets without throughout life without well, some type talk, of talk pain. We so talk much about physical pain, and there are so many physical painkillers that have, that mm -hmm. have helped many people, but also hurt. Mm -hmm. many people but we don't talk about how our mind can heal us yeah and what's interesting is our brain processes emotional pain in the same center as it processes physical pain so your brain really can't tell the difference between a broken heart and a broken leg and so it's no wonder that people turn to physical painkillers for emotional yeah. numbness the sad thing about that is when we emotionally numb ourselves, we numb everything, including our ability to have happiness, joy, or connection. Can, can you talk about the day when you realized that you could never be broken, the name of, of your memoir, mm -hmm. the name of, of, of your website now? Was there a day? Was there a moment? There was a moment. I uh, was in my 30s. Um, I realized the truth about my relationship with my mother, which was very difficult and I canceled a world tour because it was such a difficult transition for me. And I was washing my hands and looking in the mirror and it suddenly dawned on me, I'm not broken. My soul is in a teacup. I don't know what a soul is, but it's not a teacup and it's not a chair. Like, I don't think you it can be broken. You cannot smash me on the floor. <laughs> and so I thought, what if I'm not starting from the proposition that I'm broken and I have to fix myself? What, I start, what if I start from the proposition that I'm never broken? And I simply have to do an archaeological dig back to myself, get rid of all the false thoughts, the false lies, the hurt, the abuse, the trauma, clean those things out and get back to who I actually am. And so that was a two-year process, and I created a whole set of exercises for myself to help myself find that girl before I knew pain and hurt and this feeling of being shattered. Can we talk about uh, the music industry largely certainly when you were starting out executives dominated by men what that was like for you as a young woman coming up mm. i felt so lucky that i was raised in bar rooms um, you felt lucky to be raised in bar rooms. yeah because it taught me at a young age before sexuality was an issue what women would what women would compromise for compliment uh, what men were willing to do and say to give a woman a compliment that they didn't necessarily mean but because they wanted something I got to watch all of that from a very, very young age, and I learned to never trade on my sexuality. Um, I learned that being clever, being witty, um, and that investing in myself as a human became my actual currency that was a longer-lasting uh, way to have a relationship investing that was meaningful. Investing in myself as a human. Yeah. And I was also raised in a pioneer state sure. by pioneer women, and I wasn't taught my brain had a sex or that I was inferior because I was a female. I was always taught that intellectually I was as capable as a man. I might not be as physically strong, but I was as capable intellectually as a man was. Of course. And that's what gave me a lot of the courage to make the decisions I did was coming from Alaska and this pioneer state. But when I got into the music business, I had seen and been able to sniff out this type of male. It's not everywhere in my business, but there's a few of them were, in every did business. Did you face, were you propositioned, were you, I mean, did you face these unacceptable moments in the music industry? Early on I had people, before I was well known, try and make power plays, mm -hmm. not sexually, but you know, saying, you know, if you don't do this for me I'm going to ruin your career, things like that. Yeah. The great thing about being homeless is I never cared. I, you couldn't take anything from me and 
take my happiness. My happiness was my own. And so I was never afraid of losing anything. And somebody just told me a story here yesterday that they were at a coffee shop before I was signed. There was a record label there. And they said I kicked out the head of a label for smoking. And somebody <laughs> said, you can't do that. That's the head of X Records. And I went, I'm not going to sing if somebody's smoking. It hurts my throat. And they were like, the gall of her. <laughs> But that's sort of how I've been, and I knew that I didn't have to trade favors or, more importantly, compromise my integrity for something that I didn't deserve. And I felt like I had the goods to earn what I deserved. Not that I was entitled to it, mm -hmm. but that I had the goods to earn it. You aren't good for you, by the way. I want, do you know who that record executive was? Did you ever cross paths again? Yeah, I'm not sure who that one was. I, I'm sure I shocked so many of them at the time. Probably. Turning down the signing bonus shocked a lot of them. Now you're not just working um, you know, with the general public in terms of putting all this information out there. You're working with companies. I mean, big companies like Zappos, mm -hmm. Tony Shea. People are, executives are coming to you and hiring you and saying, come into our company and help teach this. Yeah. That's pretty extraordinary change for corporate America. It's been incredible for me to see how people really do want to invest in their human capital. They just don't quite know how. Right. Right now, corporate culture has been about perks, and it's created a culture of entitlement, which I think as Americans um, we would see as fundamentally flawed. Mm. Um, but how do you offer a deeper value offering to your employees um, that doesn't create entitlement, but that creates such a deep loyalty and a deep productivity because it's based on creating more bandwidth, more creativity, more resilience in them as humans so that they're able to show up that way at work and give you that. So and what do you do? Selves. Do you go to Zappos? Uh, Tony and I are forming a partnership where we're forming what we will what we're calling the next frontier of corporate culture. Okay. Where we'll have a digital toolkit of mindfulness tools to help give employees an education in all the limbs it takes to have a harmonious life. Um, and I'm very excited about the partnership and I've been amazed at the companies I've talked to that are really interested in the product. Can you because, talk about some who've come to you? Mm, yeah, gosh. Um, Rob Goldstein from Sands Corp, uh, which really surprised me. It's, you know, a gambling empire. He's a really lovely human. Not necessarily the person I thought that would be interested in this type of product, but literally in five minutes he was like, I get it. I have, you know, I think it was 4,000 maids, and he goes, and I want to help them. I know that they're struggling. I know they suffer with issues on a daily level that I can't even comprehend, and I understand that you can help them. And so huh. that type of response has been really heartening. Yeah, from an industry you didn't expect yeah. at all. Let's talk about being a mom before we, we wrap up. I open this by saying, you know, you're a mom. It's the hardest job, in my opinion, the most rewarding job, the best job. Yeah. Your son is six years old. Mm -hmm. What's it like? How has being a mother changed you? When I looked into my son's eyes the day he was born, I realized there was still a better woman in me that I wanted him to know. And it made me really redouble my efforts to be that woman that he would know and see, be in the world. And it's really what caused me to, I wouldn't say do a career shift, because I feel like this is what I've always done through my music, yeah. um, but how I'm doing it and offering it to culture is changing. For um, him. You yeah. And because I want to be a mom that isn't just touring as a sole source of income. You took a few years off when you had him, mm -hmm. is that right? I did, yeah. And what I'm building now is so that I can hopefully be at home more and still do a job I'm very passionate about and not just rely on touring income. Mm -hmm. uh, he's an incredible person and learning to be a parent and learning how to parent differently than my parents is a tremendous education and that's why one of the curriculums I'm building will be around mindful and holistic parenting. Do you, do you feel as though you have the ability to, you are, 
giving him the life you didn't have, the, the, the parenting you didn't have. You, in my opinion, from hearing your story, succeeded in spite of. Mm. And it sounds like you want him to succeed with and because of. You know, it's interesting. It's not quite as simple as that. There are some things that I really can help him benefit from. One is mindfulness, learning to be emotionally mm -hmm. responsible for your own feelings, to observe your thoughts, to know that you're the architect of your life, you're not the victim of it. Uh, but I don't think that being famous and being wealthy are two perks, quite frankly. No, it can be very bad for kids. Yeah, statistically it's quite bad. And yeah. so that's actually something I have to solve for as a parent that I didn't think I'd be solving for, which teaches me that you know, I didn't build self-esteem because my parents said you were great. I actually was hearing the opposite. I built self-esteem intrinsically because I was given difficult opportunities and I overcame them. And so it's taught me as a mother that while my circumstances are very different from my son's, he has to be given opportunities to struggle and prove to himself that he's capable. That not being around devices too often is what's really needed so he can create neural pathways based on self-creativity that's, again, intrinsic. Mm -hmm. And that those self-esteem, self-awareness, industrious, those have to be values that I instill in him in very different ways than they're instilled in and me. And not give him, just because you have wealth, yeah. just because you have this not give him too much, Yeah. right? Yeah, it's very important. And Spoiling, I found out, is much worse. When I was in private school, there was a girl who was crying. I was crying in my suite, she was crying in hers. I was trauma triggering um, because of my abuse. And I went in there assuming she had been abused and she was crying because she didn't get a Porsche for straight no. A's. And I looked at her and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm gonna be okay. And this woman might be messed up for the rest of her life. Being spoiled really can be a worse abuse <laughs> because it's a harder thing to see and overcome. You have said, I don't want to look back on my life and say, my art is my best art. I want my life to be my best work of art. What will tell you that? I find life to be a constant process of creation. There's something I call the stillness paradox. People think mindfulness will kind of maybe help you make you lose your competitive edge. I say the opposite. We're in a constant state of creation. There is nothing truly inert. It's actually impossible in physics. And so when we learn to be in the present moment and practice what we call stillness, it doesn't actually make you still or uncompetitive. It actually makes you more intelligent and a better assassin for good for whatever you're choosing to do. Better assassin for good. <laughs> um, and it makes you more capable. And so for me, it's knowing that my entire life is creative, my entire life should be a painting that I look back on. And it shouldn't be just about music. It should be about how I showed up in the world for my loved ones, how I showed up as a parent, how I showed up for myself, how I lived my values. That's how I'll judge myself, but it'll take my deathbed to really look back and see if I accomplished it. But it's a very fun daily goal. Forgiveness, forgiveness is really hard. Mm. It's really hard for a lot of us. You have forgiven your father mm -hmm. for what he put you through as a child. What is your advice for all of us on the path to forgiveness? Forgiveness is misunderstood because people confuse it with uh, condoning. And it doesn't mean that we condone somebody who hurt us. It means that we're willing to cut the tie of what attaches us. It actually is freedom. So forgiveness is the willingness to give yourself freedom. And if you think of it in those terms, it's actually much easier. It's a you gift to yourself in those terms. It is. 
And you do have to still process hurt, feelings of betrayal, those things, but you're going to have to process those things anyway. The quicker you can let go of the anger and trying to stay attached to that perpetrator, the quicker you're going to get to that healing. I forgave my dad the day I left home. You did. And he and I actually have an amazing relationship now. Not because he said he was sorry, which he did, which helped, but it's because he got sober and he changed his own neural wiring. And he's 70, and he wakes up happier today than he did yesterday. And he's very committed to helping other veterans and other people who have suffered from trauma and PTSD understanding how to live happy lives where they're able to face their life without using a substance to mitigate it. Finish this sentence for me. My greatest accomplishment is... My happiness. And finally, your son. He is six, yeah. which is, must be a magical age. <laughs> What do you want him to say about you one day when he is asked at some point in his life, tell me about your mom? Mm. I hope my son says my mom taught me to be my own person and that he, I've always understood my son isn't just my own. He's his own person. Mm. He's going to go out into the world and find his own passions and his own dreams. My job isn't to make him a fat bird with short wings. My job <laughs> is to make him a lean bird that's strong with long wings so he can soar. And I hope that's what he feels like I gave him at the end of the day. Oh, if anybody wants to help or find how to get involved in my organization, yeah. um, if they can email me at jewel at jewelincorporated.com. That is your actual email address? It is my actual email address. And I'm looking for people that are interested in editing, social media content, that's great. Uh, mindfulness writing articles, anything in the field. Thank you, Jewel. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. As always, you can follow me at Poppy Harlow CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.